Good morning. It's good to see you on this great day. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn uh, in, in them to the book of Hosea. It's one of the uh, prophets there in the Old Testament, towards the latter part of your Old Testament's there, the book of Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. As you're making your way there, we are starting a new series today entitled Living Generously. We're going to be spending six weeks looking at the topic of generosity, beginning today in Hosea chapter 11. As you find your way there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, for your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding of it. So, Lord, we would ask for your help now as we open your word to consider your truth to be changed by it. Lord, would you help us? Help us to see, help us to hear, and help us to live your truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. What is the most generous thing that has ever happened to you? And how did it affect you? Think about that for a moment. What is the most generous gift you've received and how did it affect you? How did it impact you? Maybe perhaps you can think of many examples of someone's generosity towards you. I'm sure that each of us could give many testimonies of a time or many times when we've been the recipients of someone's generosity. Maybe it was a monetary gift at a particular point in our lives where we really were under pressure and had a significant burden. Maybe it was some special family heirloom that was passed down to you. Maybe for some of you, it was a high school diploma. They're being very generous, giving you that this time. Maybe. Think about that. What's the most generous thing that has ever happened to you? And think about this. Think about how after you've been the recipient of that gift, whatever that may be, after typically, after a long period of time, after much time has lapsed, what tends to happen concerning our own gratitude towards that act of generosity? We're prone to forget it, aren't we? In fact, many of us are now remembering for the first time in months, perhaps years, of someone's generosity that we've not thought about for some time just simply because I asked the question. We're prone to forget it. Or if we happen to be the recipient of someone's generosity on a continual basis, regular basis, we will often grow from being surprised and blessed to expectant, won't we? Over time, we can easily grow cold towards the generosity of others in a way that shows our lack of gratitude. Well, today, as I said earlier, we are starting a six-week series I've entitled Living Generously. And the goal in this, in this series really is, is simply to show us and to call us to being a people of generosity. And certainly when we've been the recipients of such generosity to be humbled by that and to be grateful for it. But really the focus on this series is going to be more on the calling we have to be generous to others. In fact, one of our core values here at Redeeming Grace is that we want to be a church known for its generosity, for its generous service of other people. 
We believe that because God has been so generous to us, that we are called in turn to be generous to others. And that's exactly what we want to try to live out in a way that pleases him. So the way the series that we're going to do is, the way it's gonna roll is gonna be something like this. We're gonna start today by looking and taking a good look and we're gonna see that from Hosea chapter 11. We could look at many places, really the entire Bible, but we, we want to take a good look at just how generous God has been to us. Because listen, if we do not understand the generosity of God towards us, then we, as a people, will be prone to continue in our greediness and selfishness. If we don't understand the generosity of God, we are not going to be a generous people. But when we do understand God's amazing generosity towards us, that will change us and lead us to be a generous people. That's really the point of today's message, so you can go home, right? Not so fast. That's what we wanna look at today, but then in the coming weeks, we're gonna look at issues such as generosity to outsiders, practicing hospitality, the issue of contentment. You can't be generous if you're not content. And then we're going to look at certainly the issue of stewardship in the coming weeks together. I'm excited about this series and I think, and I think it's gonna be helpful for my own soul and I pray that it would be for yours as well. And so we want to begin looking today from Hosea chapter 11. I'll begin reading in verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Hosea was one of God's prophets who preached warning 
to the people of God. He specifically had a ministry to the northern and even to the southern kingdoms. He was kind of preaching to both kingdoms. At this point in Israel's history, we have a divided kingdom, a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom, and they've been divided after Solomon now. And so there's this existence of the two kingdoms, and Hosea was one of God's prophets who preached both to the northern and southern kingdoms. More of the impact of his ministry certainly had to do with the northern kingdom, but he preached to both kingdoms. At this time, Israel was enjoying a very prosperous life, but they were growing more and more politically unstable. Sound familiar? Maybe. Prosperous, but more and more politically unstable. Now this is some 200 to 300 years after the time of the judges. We just walked through for about four or five months now, the book of Judges. So two to 300 years later of what's going on in the life of Israel. And so Hosea's ministry is one that announces a warning of God's judgment and promise of exile if the people of God continue in their sin. It's an amazing book in many ways. In fact, the way the Lord has has Hosea approach his ministry is quite startling, isn't it? Those of you who are familiar with this book would be reminded at the beginning of Hosea, Hosea is called to go marry a prostitute. Really for the purpose of a sermon illustration. So he does. And the prostitute is unfaithful to him. So what does Hosea do? The Lord says, go get her. And he does. And all of this was to show the people of God a picture of their own condition really as as those who were prostituting themselves by going after other gods and God's relentless love and compassion and kindness towards them, despite of their wickedness, despite their, their unfaithfulness to him. Hosea chapter 11, we come to this chapter in this book, is a beautiful description of God's generosity towards his people in light, even in light of their unfaithfulness. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions in the, in the Old Testament we find of God's covenant love, his faithful pursuing love towards his people, a people that did not deserve his love, a people that did not deserve anything from him, but yet out of generosity, he gave it to them. It's a beautiful chapter in so many ways. His generosity is so amazing because he's willing to love a people who have left him to serve other gods. Here's the point I think we need to take away from Hosea 11. I said it earlier. We will never appreciate, we will never appreciate just how big and glorious God's generosity is until we understand just how selfish and sinful we truly are. And so today, if you're here and you've not thought much lately about the generosity of God towards you, you've not thought much lately about the fallenness of your condition. That's what I think we need to take away today is the fact that God is generous to a people who do not deserve his generosity. It's easy to be generous to someone who's kind and, and helpful and, 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 and maybe in our thinking kind of deserves it. They're in a hard place right now, but it's extremely difficult to be generous to someone who, is, who has thrown your name under the bus. It's a, it's a whole other thing to be generous to someone who has turned their back against you. That's exactly what we have here in Hosea. And by the way, friends, that's exactly what we have in the gospel, isn't it? Hosea is nothing more than just a snapshot before Christ of God's glorious good news that would ultimately be realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, 
As we walk through Hosea 11 today, I want us to consider four expressions of God's generosity toward us as we see it in the life of Israel. I want us to consider four expressions of God's generosity towards sinners. We're gonna see it, here are the four, I'll just give them to you up front. We're gonna see his generosity expressed through rescue, his generosity expressed through rebuke, his generosity expressed through his restraint, and his generosity expressed through restoration. Let's begin with the first one, his generous rescue. We see that in verses one through four. Here in the first four verses, we find the Lord describing the activity that he had performed towards Israel all the way back to the time when they were enslaved in Egypt. Look at this. When Israel was a child, back in those early childhood days of the nation, they're still, while they're in Egypt, I loved him. I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Verse two talks about how the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Egypt, mentioned here in verse one, verse five, and verse 11. Egypt, the, the reference to Egypt is, is here to serve both as a historical reminder and a symbolic reminder of Israel's bondage and God's, their bondage in Egypt and God's miraculous rescue of them. It's a historical thing that really happened. God did this for them. But oftentimes in the Old Testament, when there's a reference back to Egypt, it's just a quick reference to say back when we were in bondage. It's a, it's a good descriptor to remind them of the plight that they truly were in and how God rescued them from that. Notice again here all that God had done. He loved them, he called them, he taught them, he took them up, he healed them, he led them, he eased their burdens, he provided for them. All of this he did for these people. The imagery here is, is like, like a father's gentle and steady care of his child. The reality is, is that a young child is often unruly, often vulnerable and helpless, and apart from the care of a parent in great harm. So what we have here is this picture of this loving, steady, caring father who comes to his young child to tend to him. It's exactly what God has done for Israel. God had taken this helpless, vulnerable people and made them his very own, brought them out of Egypt to the promised land that he had promised to give them. It's indeed a wonderful testimony to the generosity of our God, isn't it? He's so generous to do all this. He helps the helpless. He pursues the rebellious. That'd be for a good rap, wouldn't it? Helps the helpless, pursues the rebellious. Somebody write that down. Sets the captive free, heals the broken, sets free those who were enslaved. He guides the wayward, and he does this for all of those who have given him no reason to do it. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses six through eight gives us a reminder of exactly why God has done this. Why has God pursued such an obstinate, rebellious, vulnerable, helpless people? Deuteronomy 7, verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not 
Here are the reasons that it was not. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's the only reason God did this for these people is because he loved them. It was not because they were powerful or mighty or strong or, or large in number. In fact, they were, the, they were a small group, comparatively speaking. They were weak, they were vulnerable, they were helpless, and yet God does this amazing, generous work to rescue them. Think about all that he's done for them. You know, we would be quick and I think rightly so. We would be quick to honor someone that has done something generous to another person or to a group of people. I think it would be fitting in certain occasions, in certain contexts, to honor someone that has helped helpless people. It would be fitting and right to honor someone that has pursued consistently people who have been maybe rebellious in certain ways. It would be fitting and right and good to, even as we have, to look back through, who, through history to honor those who fought hard to end the slave trade and those kinds of things. We ought to honor those kinds of people, those who would guide wayward people, those who have led movements to liberate people, all of these things, those who care for sick and hurting people. We honor these kinds of people, but listen, God has done all of this. He's done all of these things and more. And so it would certainly be right and fitting for us to honor him and celebrate his amazing generosity towards those, especially those of us who, all of us do not deserve it. God does all this and more. God's generosity is most gloriously displayed when he provided once and for all deliverance for the helpless and undeserving by sending his own son into the world to be the savior of sinners. Colossians chapter one. Verse 21, Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's a bad person. Guess what? It was you and me. Those who were alienated, hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's amazing. You could read in Ephesians chapter two. In fact, you could go to Ephesians two and read verses one through 10. Paul elaborates on that very truth much more detailed there. Those who once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in his mercy. He was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God's generosity is most clearly displayed in the fact that he has sent his one and only son to be the redeemer of those who were rebellious. He's reconciled us. So we see this. We see his generous rescue certainly played out historically in how God rescued a people out of Egypt and made them his own and placed them in the promised land. But friends, his rescue 
is something all of us have felt if we name the name Christ in our lives. If we have called upon him to be our savior and Lord, we certainly know uh, from, from experience and from the truth of scripture as well, we know about this rescue. And indeed, if you're here today and you don't know about this rescue, maybe you continue to be a, a, a non-Christian and you're present today, we certainly are glad you're here, but we would just say to you, friend, this is your only hope. What God has done in Jesus Christ is your only hope. You cannot, you cannot rescue yourself. You cannot pull yourself up and make yourself strong enough and, and pleasing enough to God. He's holy. He's holy, he's pure, he's righteous, he's good. He is so much more than you could even fathom. And you think if you can just do enough that you can stand on judgment day and say, did pretty good, didn't I, God? Not gonna happen. Certainly you may compare yourself to other people and come out better, but when you compare yourself to a holy God, all of us fall short and all of deserve nothing but, but to be judged for that. So friend, today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would just urge you to call out on the name of Christ, to believe in Jesus, to cast your hope on him, to, to embrace him in faith. And friend, your sins will be forgiven, all of them. Your sins will be forgiven, you'll be pardoned, you'll be reconciled to God forever, forever. He's generous in his rescue. Number two, he's generous in his rebuke. Look at his generous rebuke here in verses five through seven. So what we, what we find here, and we find it all the way throughout the Old Testament, we've been in Judges, so you know what I'm talking about if you've been with us. And if you've not been here for that period of time with us, the, the shocking thing that we find throughout the Old Testament, all the way throughout the Old Testament, is after, is after all God had done for Israel, all of this rescue, all of this provision that he's given them, they persist in rebellion. For a while they will serve him and worship him, but then there's a period of time where they will, they will just go back. They will go after other gods. They will rebel again and again and again. They prove to be most ungrateful in light of God's amazing generosity. Look at verse two, it says it quite clearly. The more they were called, the more they went away. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Verse seven, my people are bent on turning away from me. Here's the problem. The, the, the people just, they just had it in them that, that they were going to continue in rebellion against God. So friends, what we have here is the result was not that Israel, it wasn't that Israel just didn't presume upon God's generosity. They ignored it completely. And then they weren't presuming, they weren't, they weren't just counting on it, they were ignoring it altogether. They had forgotten their calling, their rescue, their provision. And now with ungrateful hearts, they were giving themselves continually to other gods. So, by the way, let that stand as a warning to us. Let that serve as a warning to each of us here today. And even if you, call the, if you call upon the name of the Lord and if you continue to say you're a believer and you walking in his truth, friend, let that be a warning to us to never lose sight of God's rescue. Don't lose sight of that. Don't, don't, don't forget about what God has, don't forget what God has done for you because an ignorance of that or even forgetfulness of God's generosity towards us will breed ingratitude. And a prolonged ingratitude will ultimately result in a rejection of God altogether. 
Friends, it's easy to be critical of Israel, but we must, rem- we must remember and realize that we're no different. <coughs> we have the same bent. Verse seven, my people are bent on turning away from me. We, that's us. You can say, well, he's talking about Israel. He was. But we have this, we're made of the same material, right? We, we have the same problem they had. It's called sinner. You and I are sinners. Israel was sinful. We have the same bent. Apparently, the hymn writer understood that. We sing the song this morning. The hymn writer summed it up well in, in Come Thou Found of uh, Every Blessing, where we sing in verse three, I believe it was, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, verse seven. My people are bent on turning away. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's us. We are bent on turning away. We are prone to wonder. We are prone to leave. Friends, the problem with Israel is that they, it's not that they ultimately left, that was certainly a problem, is that they didn't even recognize it. They didn't even recognize the bent that they had. They didn't recognize their proneness to wonder. And don't let that, don't let that be something you lose sight of. Many of you would certainly claim to be followers of Jesus Christ sitting here in this room. But brother or sister, if no matter how long you've been a believer, there is still the reality in your own heart that you are bent to turn away. You are prone to wonder, and if it were not for the grace of God keeping you, which he does for all those who are truly his, preserving you, keeping you in his love and care, you would run as fast and as hard as you could away from him. That's our bent. So a couple of things to be reminded of. Number one, we need to acknowledge our bent. Acknowledge your bent to sin. Acknowledge it. If you don't acknowledge it, this is where the problems begin. One of the most important yet most watered down doctrines is the doctrine of total depravity. It just sounds bad when you say it, isn't it? It just sounds bad. It's just the reality of who we are. We're, 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 we're depraved, we're, we're fallen. We're, we're sinners by nature and by choice. We've bought, but instead of what the Bible clearly teaches, we've bought the lie that we are much better than we truly are. That's what we tend to think. We're much better off than we we want to admit. We kind of like to think of ourselves that way, that we're not that bad. Stephen said it last week when he was preaching that oftentimes you'll hear people, well, I've not killed anybody. Well, praise God for that. (laughs) Praise God for that. But you're still fallen. You're still a sinner, just like me, just like everyone that's ever lived except for Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that bent, friend, until you feel the full weight of your fallen condition, you will not be in the right posture to see, value, and rejoice in God's amazing generosity. You will simply see his provision as something he was obligated to do, and he was never obligated to do anything generous to those who had turned their backs upon him. Acknowledge your bent because until you understand the, the, the weight of your own sin and the true condition that you truly are in before a holy and righteous God, you will not value his generosity. 
You will not value his generosity. So acknowledge your bent, and then two, simple, repent of your bent. Repent of your bent. Repent of your tendency towards sin. Because Israel failed to repent and be restored, God delivered them over to the Assyrians. That's what ends up happening. Assyria comes in, swoops in, destroys their cities, and takes them captive. Later on, that's what would happen to Judah, the southern kingdom. The Babylonians this time would do that. God was not going to stand by and allow his people to go unpunished or undisciplined. His righteous anger and his justice would be satisfied concerning sin. Listen, listen to this. Did you realize that God's righteous anger and his disciplinary actions towards his own people are actually an expression of his generosity? The fact that he cared enough to come in, to take them into exile as a moment of discipline, not ultimate judgment. It was an act of judgment and discipline, but he was teaching his people a lesson, and then later on he would send them right back to the land. It's actually an expression of generosity. This justice is corrective and designed to turn Israel back to him. And strangely enough, as, sound, as strange as that may sound, that's generous. I mean, think about this. How many of you like being disciplined? Adults, not kids. How many of you like being disciplined by your parents when you were little? But how many of you later on said, you know what, mom or dad or whoever was raising you, I'm thankful you did that for me. Amen. Amen. You, you look back and, and you're grateful, whoever it was in your life that, that, that brought some kind of discipline in your life because you saw, you see now how that actually led to good things in your future. It's exactly what we find here. It's an act of generosity that God disciplines his people. It was a prolonged call to repentance. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, those that will not return to the duties they have left cannot expect to return to the comforts they have lost. Those that will not return to the duties they have left cannot expect to return to the comforts they have lost. Friends, this is a call to repent of our tendency I was reading a prayer this morning that written by someone else and he was saying, Lord, I repent of my repentance. Sometimes our repentance is pretty sad, isn't it? I repent of my repentance. Lord, I've not repented like I should have. Yeah, I've acknowledged these sins here and there, but I, there's so much that's wrong with me. We're called to repent. And friend, if the Lord is confronting you in your sin and in your rebellion, listen, see it as an act of generosity from God. When you feel convicted of your sin, rejoice that God is being generous to you and not bringing immediate justice upon you. It's an amazing demonstration of his generosity. So God is generous even in his rebuke. Three, he's generous in his restraint. In verses five through seven, it seems like the Lord is taking full action to judge his rebellious people, what we see there. My people are bent on turning away from me, verse seven, and though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. Sounds like God's coming in with the final boom and they're done. We're told Assyria shall be their king, the sword shall rage against their cities, they will be devoured because they sought their own counsel and not God's. That's what verses five through seven says. Sounds as if the time for them to repent is over and that, they, that it's too late. They're going to get what they deserve. 
But the chapter does not end in verse seven. We now have verses eight and nine. In verse eight, we pick up and says, if God is having a dialogue with himself, look at this. How can I give you up, O Ephraim, one of the tribes? How can I hand you over, O Israel? He's just said in verse seven, even though if you call out to me, I'm not gonna listen, you're done. Verse eight, how can I do this? <laughs> how can I do this to you? How can I treat you? Like Edmond and Zeboim, those were two cities uh, associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the cities that were in, completely destroyed and annihilated because of their depravity. How can I treat you like this? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Again, it's as if God is saying here, he just can't bring himself to totally destroy his people. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over, he says. Think about this. Again, those of you who are parents in this room, it's a weird thing raising kids. <laughs> Think about this, you know, there are just moments when, you, when you're just at your wits end, right? You're starting to act crazy, you're starting to, to, to sound a little bit on edge, you're starting to, to, to raise the voice, your, your veins in your neck are starting to pop out, your blood pressure's rate rising as every word comes out, and, and you're just being pressured and pushed, and you're just ready to execute complete judgment upon your kid at that moment. Hopefully you don't, hopefully there's some restraint there. But isn't it a strange thing in like 10 minutes later you can just be cuddling with that same kid, just thanking God how beautiful that child is and how blessed you are to have him or her? That's a weird thing, isn't it? One moment, anger. The next moment, what a blessing you are. That's a weird thing. It's kind of what God is doing here, kind of. He's angry with his people but because he has such a love and compassion for them, he will not ultimately destroy them. That is generous. That is generous. What a beautiful picture of God's covenant love towards his people. Even though they deserve the full extent of his judgment, his compassion towards them will not allow it. I will not execute my burning anger. For I am God and not a man. You know what that means? If God was acting like a man, he would execute full justice. That's what we always want. We want justice to be served. We, and we're happy to be the executor of that justice. But God's not like us. His judgment, his anger is tempered by his mercy and his grace. And friend, if it weren't for that fact, none of us would have hope. Not one. He is a God of justice and wrath, but he's also extraordinarily patient and kind and generous. When you read a passage, friends, like Hosea 11, it should call you to fall on your knees before God in humility to thank him for his generosity towards you. Even if you're not a Christian, you should be thankful that God is generous towards you. Psalm 145 verse nine says, the Lord is good to all. There's common grace God gives to every person. There's so much goodness he, he allows to you, even if you're not a Christian. But he's 
generous towards all. His mercy is over all that he has made, we're told. And so even if you're here today and not a Christian, it's an act of God's generosity to you and to the rest of us that we're still breathing. Friend, I just ask you, do you ever just sit and marvel at God's kindness to you? When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you just were overwhelmed by the kindness and goodness and generosity of God towards you? You're so overwhelmed by that sense of, God, I'm so undeserving and you're, you're so generous to me. And it's a good thing to do, to pause in the midst of our busy, hectic lives, just to, to be amazed at God's generous grace towards us. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by that? Friends, listen, God's favor and his generosity is something we should never presume upon, but listen, it most certainly is something we should celebrate. It's, it's something we should recognize with joy and, and gratitude. And that's something Israel was missing. They were handed over to their captors, their cities would be destroyed, their lives would be impacted because of their sin. But listen, that's not the end of the story. We get to number four, his generous restoration. As a means of temporal judgment, Israel would do time, so to speak, in Assyria and later Babylon. Judah would go to Babylon, or Israel to Assyria. They would do time under the oppressive hands of the Assyrians as a means of God's judgment and discipline upon them. But listen, look at verses 10 and 11. While God says, I can't fully destroy you, he did allow them to go into exile to be punished for a season. But look at verse 10. Later on, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. He's taking them back. He's taking them away. Their cities would be destroyed. They would be temporarily disciplined and judged because of their sin. But listen, he says, you're gonna go back. You're going to go back. You're gonna have homes again. You're gonna have a temple again. You're gonna have all of this again that I promised you. Their judgment is followed by a time of restoration when they would go back to the very land he had given them. And this when the people of God were under the control of other nations. God even moved providentially in the hearts of those pagan kings to allow them to go back home. Just a reminder that neither the sin of the people nor the powerful control of other nations can keep God from calling his people back to the land he had promised. Our sin and the power of others cannot hinder God when he wants to be generous to his people. It's good news. It's good news. And friend, that truth is still true today. God is still calling his people from the ends of the earth, not to homes in the promised land, but to be safely at home with Christ. He's calling us. He's calling people, men, women, boys, and girls from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. He's calling them from the ends of the earth to be safe at home with Christ. And there's coming a day when we will all dwell securely in the land that he will establish forever. It's called new heavens and new earth. Revelation 20, 21, you can read about it there. There's coming a day when that will come, when the 
the ultimate restoration will happen. And not just Israel, but every tribe that God has ransomed from the nations will be there forever. What a testimony to the amazing generosity of God. Not just for this one people, but for all nations. All nations. The name Hosea means salvation. The name Hosea means salvation. And it serves, this book serves as a wonderful testimony and prelude to how God would fully and finally bring salvation to the nations, namely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider Israel's plight, their problems, their rebellion, and it's one that's quite reminiscent of our own. For all of us are helpless and vulnerable. Unless God comes for us, we will perish. We will perish. Hosea 11 reminds us of God's amazing generosity toward a people who deserved nothing but judgment. And while God's just wrath is kindled towards his people, it is tempered by his mercy and his generosity. Hosea, friends, is really a reminder that only in the Lord can justice and mercy be perfectly satisfied. And Jesus demonstrated that when he hung on the cross, the wrath and judgment of God paying for the penalty of our sin upon his shoulders. And yet his compassion and mercy and grace and love being demonstrated at the same time because he's forgiving us of our sins. It's a beautiful reminder of God's generosity. Hosea is a reminder that only in the Lord can we find this. And because of that, we can benefit from his generous rescue, even his generous rebukes in our lives, his generous restraint for not giving us what we deserve immediately, and for his generous promise of restoration. Friends, God's anger towards sin is no less today than it was in Hosea's day. But the good news is that, it, that, that while God's wrath against sin has been perfectly quenched and satisfied in Christ on the cross, we, we can have hope. We can have hope. We have an amazingly generous God. And all you have to do is to look to the gift of his son on your behalf. Look to the gift of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to see the full extent of his generosity because it's in Christ and in Christ alone where the helpless are helped, where the slaves are set free, where the guilty is pardoned, and where the wayward are brought home. Praise be to God for his generosity. Let's pray. God, you are amazingly generous. Father, whether we realize it or not, every person in this room have been recipients of your generosity in one way or another. All of us stand this morning, we, we come into this room today unworthy, entirely unworthy of your generosity. We've done nothing to earn that. We've done nothing to deserve your kindness or compassion, your provision, but you have given that to us anyway. So Lord, today we just want to acknowledge that before you. We want to just lay this foundation in week one of this series of realizing that we cannot be generous apart from understanding your generosity towards us. So God, would you help us? Would you confront in, in our own selfish, greedy hearts 
areas where we have grown complacent and cold towards your generosity. Would you humble us today, Lord, and help us to repent, even to repent of our repentance because of how ungrateful we often are, how much we presume upon your grace and how much we take for granted your kindness towards us. God, would you just give us eyes to see how wonderful you are, how generous you are and have been and will continue to be. That our lives may be transformed into reflecting your character of generosity as we seek to be generous to others. God, confront us today where we need confronting and change us that we may more, more and more look like Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his sake, amen.